0: I'm Jim Knight, the co-founder of the Instructional Coaching Group, and you're listening to Coaching Conversations, where I talk with coaching experts from around the world so that all of us can learn better ways to make an unmistakably positive impact on the people around us. Michael bungay Stanier is at the forefront of shaping how organizations around the world make being coach-like an essential leadership competency, and his book, The Coaching Habit, is the best-selling coaching book of the century, or of the millennium, for that matter, with over a million copies sold, thousands of five-star reviews on Amazon. 2019, he was named the number one thought leader in coaching and he was the first Canadian coach of the year. He's a global coaching guru and uh, he's a Rhodes Scholar. Michael founded Box of Crayons, this learning and development company that helps organizations transform, moving from advice-driven to curiosity-led organizations. And he's an awesome speaker presented twice at the teaching, learning, coaching conference. He's funny, practical, and he has really high levels of engagement with his audience. He's been on stages and screens around the world in front of crowds ranging from 10 to 10,000 or maybe more. His TEDx talk has been watched by hundreds of thousands of people. And you'll learn more about him at mbs.works. I just want to highlight a couple of his books. In addition to The Coaching Habit, the most popular book of the millennium, <laughs> He has a book called Do More Great Work, which I loved, which was really a powerful tool for helping me think deeply about what I'm doing and how I do it. And he recently published a book called How to Begin. And um, I read every word, did every activity, and defined my next research project based on that really accessible, powerful book. His book, The Advice Trap, like the coaching habit, is a classic in the field of coaching. His books are accessible, fun, powerful practical just like he is he's a generous person i love talking to michael let's turn to the conversation i'm jim knight and i'm really thrilled to talk to michael bungay stanier he's a phonetically spelled out his thing i try to say that with my best uh, australian accent Um, i even had vegemite this morning just to get in the mood so good man um I, really, I am a huge Vegemite fan. I'm the only one in America, but I am. Uh, Michael is a global leader uh, in coaching, arguably the global leader in coaching. And uh, in 2019, he was named the number one thought leader in coaching. His book, The Coaching Habit, has sold over 700,000 copies. It's the best-selling coaching book of the century. And I want to visualize what that looks like, that seven hundred thousand copies. So so I don't know what they call the stadium now, but when I lived in Toronto, it was the Sky Dome. It's actually yes. not the Sky Dome, it was Sky Dome. So let's imagine the stadium called Sky Dome, and every seat is filled with fans and they're all reading a copy of your book. And then imagine thirteen more Sky Domes <laughs> and you all filled with that people so all good. holding up copies of the whole coaching habit. And you still haven't got everybody who's bought a copy of your book. That's how that's how many you've sold. It's it. That's amazing. That's a powerful a powerful <laughs> visual image. Thank you. Imagine Jim. that, like it's fourteen sky domes, and they've all got your book out, and they're they're probably all smiling as they read it too. It's pretty amazing. The only book I can see dethroning the coaching habit is the book of the century is his new book, The Advice Trap. We're going to be talking about both books. So I have some questions. We'll see where this goes. Uh, And we'll talk for about maybe 40, 45 minutes or so. And then people have submitted some more questions and I've tried to edit them. And um, and let's see where it goes. And you can take this in a different direction if you like to. I'm just excited to have the conversation. So.
1: I'm excited too, Jim. I'm a fan of your work and what you've built in the community that you nurture and help guide. So I'm always happy to have this
0: conversation. So thanks for having me back. Be careful because I'll, I'll I'll keep hunting you down. I'll keep grabbing <laughs> your arm as you go out the door.
1: Well, I've got so, your books up on my shelf around the corner here as well.
0: So, you know, it's a, there's mutual admiration here. Uh, we well, are kind, but here I got this one. Oh, yeah. Complete with all my notes in it on uh, how to do more great work. I've got this cool book. This book is called uh, Get Unstuck and Get Going. And so, what Michael's done with this book is it's kind of like those flip books you get as kids. So, it's got different elements and you can flip it to kind of solve your problem. It's got. uh,
1: Here's the the very first edition of that, which we we self published Uh as we did the other one that you've got but kind of before self-publishing was a thing. So this involved shipping things to China and <laughs> it's got this kind of heavy kind of nuclear bomb proof head cover and CDs and other books inside books. Right. It was like, it was a hell of a production, but right. it's, it's pretty hard.
0: It's not going to be the same digitally.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> and then there's this book, a uh, great work, which has kind of like thoughts for every day tomorrow's thought, just so you can look ahead, is if you were playing the long game, and you are, whether you like it or not, what would you sacrifice now for the bigger win? That's our thought for looking ahead to tomorrow.
1: Well, let me ask you, Jim, what's what's your answer to that? I mean, you're
0: doing, you're playing a long game in the work that you do so well, my long game is is, is pretty simple and it's a cliche it sounds like a cliche but it's very very vividly clear which is excellent instruction every day in every class for every student everywhere so unless we hit that goal we keep going and so that means we keep looking at what does really great instruction look like and what's the best kind of coaching and leadership in the systems and so that's the goal but to get, get there um it's a it's a continual struggle to build relationships while at the same time um you know have time to do the work. So yeah. Uh I, I seem to have this week gotten all kinds of emails from people who are writing me to say, I don't know if you got my email from last week, but I mean, like every email is starting off with that <laughs> particular message. So so I it's pretty hard to keep and I'm not um willing to sacrifice my family life and my marriage to get my work done. So finding I don't right. know if balance is the right word, but that, the, there has to be some kind of, that's what I'm wrestling with in terms of, Yeah. Back of, how about you?
1: Well, that's interesting. You know, um, so a, about a year ago, a little under a year ago, I stepped away from leading Box of Crayons. And that's been a fantastic decision because the woman who stepped in to be the CEO is, is so good and so much smarter than I am. And such a, a, a strong leader. And, um, it really has meant that um, i've I've created some space for me to go what what game am I even playing now? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to talk about a vision of mine, and this still may be it, but i I need to reimagine it or revisit it that my goal was to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. Mm-hmm. so that for me was a powerful articulation because. In possibility, virus i mean it's not a great metaphor in the middle of a pandemic but <laughs> let's go with it anyway um you know the a possibility possibilities around do you see the choices you have and do you have the courage to make the better choice and the virus metaphor works because it's like i kind of need to get out of the way of this because if i'm the bottleneck I become a bit like your inbox, you know, I'm (laughs) behind on answering everybody. So I need to find ways to get my work out into the world and find ways for it to spread and, and move by itself. And um, so now if, if I take the, I know I've been playing with, well, who am I now, you know, the website I have now is mbs dot works, and I quite like the dot works piece because it's like so it works as in it it's effective. Um, it works as in it's a collection of the stuff that I do, the projects I have, um, and it works uh, in that um, that I work. <laughs> you know, it's like it's some mm. it's the sweat and the tears and the blood and, and creation in there. So it has that triple meaning that I really like. But that's very me-centric. Now I'm trying to go, what's the, what's, what's the promise I try and make to people? And I think at the moment, it feels like it comes around going, look, I want people to be curious. I want people to be courageous. And I want people to be their best selves. And there's an invitation to say, if people can bring curiosity to to what that might be, bring courage to take action on that and to step forward to a, the best version of themselves, then they start dreaming
0: about the the long game that they're playing. Now, I would say if I had a list uh, like that, that um, one word that would stand out for for me is the word love in the sense Mm -hmm. of uh, engaging your will for the good of others. Right. To me, that's a a critical piece of what we do is to to try to, uh, to, to accomplish that in the work we do. That's what we call the partnership approach. A large part of it is that attitude of benevolence. And the partnership approach was influenced more than anybody else uh, by by one person more than anybody else. And that's Peter Block. And in this book, you dedicated to Peter Block. Let me just read your dedication, if it's okay. This book is dedicated to Peter Block more than 10 years ago. He was kind enough to write a blurb for my first book, Get Unstuck and Get Going. We already looked at that. Most blurbs tend to be a little shallow and fair enough. They're meant to help sell a book with some razzle-dazzle, but Peter's was different. He wrote, this is a quiet political message that coaching is available to all of us, and it's not a profession, but a way of being with each other. And that observation has become the raison d'etre for the work I do and the work we do at Box of Crayons. We want to democratize coaching. So um, what was the impact of Peter Block, and what do you mean democratize coaching? There's a way that... Coaching
1: is a really, in the end, it's a, it's a technology to help people communicate better, to build better relationships. To If you, if you want to go to the kind of uh, the model of Martin Buber, that philosopher who says, look, there are, there are two types of relationships in the world. There's I-it and there's I-thou. And I-it is when you've kind of lost a little of the humanity. You've kind of objectified the other person. And I thou is when you're able to, you know, as I think of it, be present to the kind of fullness and messiness and complexity and brilliance of that other person. Really, you're able to love them. To use that word that you mentioned before, um, I think coaching, where you where you are able to show up and be open hearted with that other person, allows I thou relationships. <laughs> Because, you know, the way we end up defining coaching or, or being more coach-like is can you just stay curious a little bit longer? Can you rush mm-hmm. to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly? And the curiosity has a kind of open-mindedness and an open-heartedness that allows a connection. So if, curi- if coaching has that potential, part of what I feel the work to be done is is to make it less weird because the people that are in all of both of our inner circles don't think coaching is weird. Like there, I mean, pretty much everybody listening here is all, all like, I love coaching. Coaching's <laughs> awesome. And that's great. But the majority of people go, I don't even know what coaching is. I've kind mm-hmm. of heard it. I kind of haven't, it feels a bit weird. It feels a bit touchy feely. It doesn't feel like it's got anything to do with me. And democratizing coaching is really fancy language to say it'd be great if more people were able to stay curious a little bit longer because you'd have, I think, better relationships, mm-hmm. better conversations, better outcomes, better world, you know, that sort of stuff.
0: My, my well, friend and Andrew
1: would call this my, my Messiah complex, but you right, know what? what? I'm just going to embrace it. Go for it.
0: Yeah. The, the people watching this are actually – coaches of coaches of coaches. That's what I think they right. probably are. They're at the meta level for, for coaching. I want to come back to what you said about the democratization a little bit when we talk about the advice trap, when we talk about different kinds of change, but I can't let you go without asking a few questions about the coaching habit. So sure. the first thing I want to ask is um, how did the, the book come to be? Can you sort of tell us the story of how it became yeah. the book that it is? So I, um, I had an idea for this book,
1: which is a in part just grew from the experience of teaching people to be more coach-like and you know you, you try a whole bunch of stuff out and you see what works and you see what doesn't work and you start developing concepts and ways of articulating stuff that starts to land and I'm like there's something powerful here and as you know Jim because you write books as well when you decide to write a book you want to be really confident you want to write a book because it's mostly a miserable experience <laughs> you know it's it's hard mm-hmm statistically almost nobody is going to read your book. So even though it takes you hours and hours and hours, like, I mean, most books sell less than a thousand copies. So if you think that at a minimum you've spent probably a thousand hours on a book, it's, it's a terrible investment of time, unless you've got a real way that this book fits into a bigger plan. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons that you and I write books, Jim, is that we go, we can see how this fits into a bigger plan of what we do. We have a community that we serve. We have a, a business that this can help fuel and fund and be part of in a way. So that all helps. But anyway, I published the the red book that you held up, Do More Great Work, with a New York publisher called Workman. And so I went back to them because I had first write a refusal on the new book. And I'm like, here's the idea. And they're like, uh, oh, Maybe show us, show us what you think. So I I went away and I wrote the book. I came back to them and went, ta-da! And they went, no, we don't like this book. I was like, oh man. So I went away and I wrote another version of the book and came back and went, ta-da! And they went, no. I was like, ah, And actually this kept going on on. I wrote probably four or five complete different versions of this book and grew to hate it. And I, I got myself an agent Then I fired my agent because it just really wasn't working at all well. And, you know, I had moments of feeling demoralized about it and other moments of feeling outraged about it. And uh, eventually I was like, you know what, there is a, there is a book here. And I've gone back to, well, I've, I've found my path to going, I've got this idea and now I know it's the idea. This isn't a, I'm testing the idea. I'm like, I, I see this book. This is the book I'm going to write. And I went back to them. I went, I got it now. It's this book. And by the way, it's now a yes or a no. It's not a go away and have another crack of it. It's either it's this or, it's, or you're saying no to the book. And they went, no. And I was, I was honestly gutted because um, I thought, a, I thought it was a good idea for a book and b. I was always like, w- wouldn't you bet on the person? Because the Do More Great Work had sold 80 or 90 or 100,000 copies of the book. So it, it done pretty well. But they just, they just didn't like it. They didn't get it. It didn't fit with their strategy at the time. So I was at a crossroads. I was like, do I go and find another publisher? Because, you know, I know enough people to probably get meetings with some other publishers or other agents. I could probably find some way of making that happen. Or do I self-publish? And I just decided that I was going to self-publish, but, but I was going to do it really well. The, the rule was I had to self-publish as a professional, not as an amateur. Um, so I started looking around and researching, and I committed to hiring a great editor, which I did, and a great designer, which I did. And the designer, Peter, then introduced me to a company called Page Two, who uh, is, is effectively a... Um, a hybrid publishing company uh, run by two very experienced people from the publishing industry going, we let's, let's invent a new publishing model because the old one is a bit broken. And so with them, we produced this book really quickly. I mean, it was kind of nine months uh, from go to woe to do this next version of the book. And because I'd written it six times, <laughs> I, was, I was pretty quick writing it the seventh time because uh, I knew what I wanted to say and I have and I just written it a lot. And I had a great editor who made made things smoother and cleaner and clearer. Um, and so we launched it on February the 29th, 2016, because it was leap year. And I was mm-hmm. like, that's cool. And in my mind, I was like, you know what, in four years time, I can claim that it's its first birthday. So I can kind of fake the numbers of <laughs> <laughs> how many I've sold. And um, and it just kind of took off. And somehow, I mean, I worked very hard at marketing it, but it also got a little bit of fairy dust sprinkled over it. And it's gone on to sell seven or 800,000 copies now.
0: I know the the, the people you work with because they helped us with uh, our book, the instructional right. playbook book, and they are wonderful partners and they sure love you. Um, do you send a postcard every 100,000 copies back to your publisher who turns you down or just let it go?
1: <laughs> I have chosen to let it go. I mean, don't get me wrong. I feel pretty damn smug about the decision to yeah, self-publish. it's like the Beatles,
0: you know, turning down yeah. the Beatles.
1: You know. Well, it's possibly not quite as calamitous <laughs> as turning down the Beatles, but I did I did in, in the dedications and the acknowledgments, I say something along the lines of, um, uh, or it doesn't really matter, but I kind of say, hey, thanks for, uh, there we go, um, to blah, 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 who said no to earlier versions with, proved to be astute. And I just kind of gave them a shout out going, you know, you said, no, that helped me. Thank you. I don't think (laughs) I need to rub their face in the fact that they've made a, they probably regret turning down the the book. So I wanted to ask about the
0: title. It's not how to win friends and coach people. And it's not the seven highly effective coaching questions. It's the coaching (laughs) habit. Yeah. So What do you mean by coaching? And what do you mean by habit?
1: Yeah, both good questions. I mean, part of it is this piece around democratizing coaching, and what what i've ended up saying is i don't i'm not actually trying to turn anybody into a coach what i want is everybody to be more coach-like and to be more coach-like is that that definition i've said before which is can you stay curious a little bit longer can you rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly and that's what we keep saying that's the behavior change when you when you look up you know what are the definitions of coaching there's there's a lot And they're all kind of similar, but they're all slightly different. They're often, you know, unlocking the potential of this and what, helping that. And those are all good outcome descriptors. But what I focus the definition on is a behavior that is the process. Just stay curious a little bit longer. Because that just feels more doable for people. Because when you say, I don't know what coaching is, and I go, it's this. They go, I could probably give that a go. I could probably try and stay curious a bit longer. I can probably see why that's helpful. You know, whether I'm an executive, a manager, a teacher, a principal, a superintendent, I can see how curiosity would be good for me, for my team, for my classroom, whatever it might be. But the success for me is people doing things differently. I'm trying to change behavior. And that's why it was called the coaching habit, which is part of my belief is coaching is most effective not when it's an occasional slightly formalized event you know hey Jim it's it's the seventh it's time for our monthly coaching session come into my office because we're going to coach each other or come meet me on zoom because it's I'm going to coach you now you know there's a way that executive coaching sets that model which is we have occasional formalized regular meetings and you get coached and then you go back to your regular life but for me The three principles of successful coaching are be lazy, be curious, be often, which are kind of, you know, a little provocative. Um, Being curious, people will understand right away. You know, in the language of the new book, it's like learn how to tame your advice monster. Being often is, uh, well, actually being lazy is the most obviously provocative of that because everybody listening here, nobody goes, oh, I'm a lazy person. But the message is stop solving other people's problems for them. Allow them to step in and own their own problems and solve their own problems. Not just for them, not just so they get to grow and learn and step up in accountability and feel empowered, but for you so you're not working so hard. (laughs) You're you're doing one job, not eight jobs. You know, be lazy like that. But the, the most quietly radical of those three principles is be often, which is to say, if being more coach-like is can you stay curious a little bit longer? It means any interaction can be a bit more coach-like, you know, a, a formal one-to-one, a passing encounter in a classroom, a chat over Zoom, a chat over Slack. Uh, a podcast interview. I mean, it was interesting. You know, you went, Oh, here's an interesting thing from the book. And I'm like, Oh, tell me about your long game. And suddenly we're into an interesting conversation. And you wouldn't say, Oh, Michael is coaching Jim. But you might say Michael's bringing an attitude of curiosity and a coach like attitude to the way he shows up as a guest. Because I am more interested in dialogue and an exchange and a kind of I like I'm interested in you as a person, Jim, not just as a mouthpiece for questions. And my curiosity allows me to connect to that. You know, when you
0: did the uh, keynote at uh, Indianapolis at our conference, I felt the be lazy message particularly came through because uh, I talked to many people and then you graciously allowed me to use that activity you did. And they and they'll say, I don't have to solve their problem. I can just (laughs) ask the question and let them like. It's like a radical insight. I can just ask the question and let them answer. It's so cool. It's so liberating. Right. <laughs> it's so exactly. liberating.
1: You know, it's like that. the conversations that people have, which is like, oh, I've got to go away and prepare for my coaching session. I'm always like, what do you need to prepare? Because <laughs> <laughs> if you don't, I mean, and actually you, it's useful to connect to context. Who is this person? What are they up against? What matters to them? What are their values? What's the game that they're playing, the short-term game, the long-term game? That's actually helpful to kind of be clear on. But honestly, you can coach um, almost anybody. In fact, to be kind of even more radical about it, when I've been training people around the world, I've actually coached people in languages that I don't speak. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll have a conversation and somebody will come up and they're like, I'm Finnish. And I speak, you know, high Finnish, and I'm like, fantastic. I don't speak Finnish, and I'll go. All right, so um, I'm trying to think of a Finnish name. I can't. Toka. So Taka, um, What's the real challenge for you? I'll ask in English, and he will answer in Finnish, and I'll be listening, and I'll be able to, you know, you can you can understand the shape of a, a sentence, even if you don't understand the content. You you know when they're finished. And I'll finish talking. I'll go great. Um, what else is a challenge? And they'll go oh, and they'll start, they'll tell me the next thing in Finnish. And I'm like yeah, great. Is there anything else here that's a challenge for you? And they'll say y- yes. <laughs> and I'll keep talking. And I'll go this is brilliant. What's the real ch- out of all of that? What's the real challenge here for you? And they'll tell me. And I've had no idea what we're talking about, but the structure and the process actually allows you to show up and be more curious because what you're doing in being more coach-like is you are creating a space in which people are allowed to figure some stuff out so you know I think being more coach-like is in essence remembering how to be a powerful teacher you know I think of my Three of my four grandparents uh, were teachers. One of my brothers was trained as a teacher. I feel like I'm a teacher. You know, I'm just not doing it in the context of the standard classroom. And in those moments, what I'm always trying to do is go, can I create a learning moment for you so that you create a new neural connection? And my curiosity and my willingness to not rush in with action and advice giving creates the space for the people to make the the aha connection
0: you know jenny and i took the questions out to dinner once we had this thorny issue we were going through and we just asked each other the question so we had a really good conversation and i see it again and again and again when people get together and ask the question it's led me to ask myself uh well, can i do it to myself can i just go jim what's on your mind and what's your real challenge and well i think that's a good thought exercise i do think there's some the something about having another person there responding. And I've also wondered about an app. Could you create an app that just says, what's the real challenge? And I I don't think it's going to be the same as having a human interaction. You know, I just don't think it's the same.
1: So the question I always hold is, is it, would it be good enough? Because if you hold the standard for the human interaction being at its best, that can, that is the, that's the gold standard. A really good conversation with somebody using the question skillfully and listening powerfully but you know what there are there are human to human interactions which kind of suck <laughs> you know they they don't ask the question they don't listen to the answer they don't the questions don't follow there's kind of a there's a there's a suboptimal human experience as well i think trying to answer the questions in your own head <clears throat> just gets slippery because you get distracted And you and you collude with yourself to avoid the hard answers. I think though you can take those questions and journal them and Mm -hmm. they become you're answering them in a different way because you're slow, you're actually you're making concrete your answers. Right. And you're slowing down the piece. So it's more of a, it's got more of the rhythm of a conversation. Whereas in your head, you can just kind of blast through and it all kind of gets a bit mushed up.
0: Yeah, I use the I don't know if you're familiar with the examine questions from the Ignatian way of looking at things. And then I use uh, PERMA, the PERMA acronym to say, well, how positive was yesterday? How engaged was I? How were my relationships? And I write a journal every morning when I get up and I give myself a score. So nice. So I'll say, well, today is a three, but it would have been a four if I'd done this. And it's just kind of a way of reflect. And I find that really, really helpful.
1: Well, I've got three questions that I I check in with in the morning at the moment, which I'm liking. They come from my friend, uh, Neil Pezzarica. I'm just going to grab his book. Mm-hmm. Neil wrote The Book of Awesome some years ago based mm-hmm. on a podcast, uh, a blog post that he did. This is his latest book, and it's his best book. It's this combination of his research on happiness and his research on what it means to be awesome, and it's a, it's really wonderful. I love it. And from this book, I took his three questions, his kind of two-minute check-in. What will you let go of? Hmm. Uh, what are you grateful for? What will you focus on? Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are variations probably of the other questions that you, you use as well, but there's a way of releasing stuff so it mm-hmm. doesn't keep sucking you into kind of gnawing a bone. You know, being grateful, you right of the gratitude exercise. And then what you focus on is a declaration of intent for the day.
0: Yes, that, that makes sense. And I, but I haven't thought about the letting go. I like that, that idea of, of, of what I'm yeah, about. I
1: found that really helpful.
0: So I read in the advice trap that um, you had at one point, a hundred questions uh, in the coaching habit and you narrowed it down to seven. And now yeah, first off, let more, me say, actually. I want that hundred questions. But the second thing is, um, How did you do that? How how did you narrow it down to seven? What was that process?
1: So uh, my process is I take um, scrap paper and I write and I write and I write because I am very structurally driven. For me, elegance starts with structure and elegance is a key value of mine, a key outcome that I want. Because an elegance speaks to sufficiency, there's the right amount of stuff there and no more. And when many things are created, but certainly when books are written, I, I always react to books where I'm like, this is flabby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this should, I don't know why these 20 pages are here. They just seem to be using up 20 pages with no actual added value. Mm-hmm. And I want a I tautness to my stuff. So it feels like there's a, an elegant arc to it and it doesn't feel like there's a wasted page in the book. And, you know, if I I think of a a writer I really like, Charles Duhigg, you know, he's got two books out. Um, One of them is called The Power of Habit, Mm -hmm. and I think it's a fantastic book. It's I mean, he's a beautiful writer. He's smart. He uses science. He uses story. He's got that kind of combination. And then he wrote another one called Faster
0: smarter better faster yeah yeah
1: yeah which i just don't think is as good because it doesn't have the rigor of the structure it's kind of a piecemeal book rather than a single a single arc to it so i just you know i literally just wrote and i wrote and i wrote and when i and i keep putting the designs I, i i design visually so i'm kind of structuring stuff out and um, I would literally just write out questions in order and going, does this feel like the flow? Do these feel like the questions? And, you know, I went from actually more than 100. But The idea for the book was like 150 questions, each with two pages per question. And I kind of wrote it out. I went, this is just a terrible book. I mean, it's unreadable. <laughs> it's boring. It's tedious. You've got the paradox of choice, which is whilst mm-hmm we all feel like we want more at a certain point we're pouring water into a full glass, it just doesn't work. So that discipline to go, and this was a mantra as I wrote both of these books, what's the shortest book I can write that would be most useful? Just meant that I had to kept cutting it. And I try, I know I experimented with nine and eight and seven and five and three. And in the end, seven, in part because of seven habits of, you know, highly successful people, it's got a, it's got a, it's got a power to it as a number.
0: Telephone numbers, seven deadly sins, yeah, seven fruits of the spirit, exactly. Um, seven Beatles, you know. There's a, or well, maybe I don't have that right, but <laughs> anyway, um, the Fab Seven, I think, is what it is. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's. We should probably turn to the. Uh, uh, Dice they were Habit.
1: originally. They were originally the Fab Seven, and it wasn't working out from the
0: five people, and went down to four, and it That's kind of right. it, they took off them after that. That's right. Um, so the advice trap, be humble, stay curious, change the way you lead forever. Um, I'm going to ask a question I have an answer, answer to, but um, why is advice such a bad thing? Don't people want our advice? Hmm.
1: They do. And advice isn't a bad thing. Advice is useful. I mean, this whole conversation is a smattering of advice. Like I'm, hmm. I'm telling you stuff. I'm trying to teach people stuff. So advice isn't a bad thing. This is not a book that is against advice. This is a book that says when advice giving is your default response, you lose, they lose, we all lose. And it's about breaking the default response. That's the the advice trap is that you go, somebody starts talking to you, and in 10 seconds you've made the decision about what it is that you need to tell them. And now you're just kind of waiting for them to shut up so you can actually offer up your genius idea. Mm-hmm. That's the trap. And that's what we're looking to, to try and shift. You know, it comes back to that definition. Can you slow down the rush to advice giving and action? And the advice trap is that when we
0: don't slow that down. I was in Salt Lake City um, a while back. Actually, I was in Provo, but in Utah. And the, there's a group of people we got together, and and one of them asked a question about um, how to address some kind of coaching issue in her school. And then I immediately told her, here are five things you should do. And everybody at the table gave her five things. And she's graciously nodding her head yes and writing these things down and saying, oh, well, it's so helpful. But part way through, I went, there's no way she's going to do any of this stuff. It's not even, yeah. it's not even going, it's, it's not, it's going nowhere, you know, and yeah, it felt good to give it's advice. Amazing. Like I have your solution. Here's what you need to do. But it didn't do anything. What would you have done in retrospect? What would you have done differently? Well, I think she would have got more out of the session if she had come to some awareness on her own instead of us all pumping her full of ideas. which gets to this question i wanted to ask which is uh i put it this way i have this friend and when he's (laughs) reading your book he's thinking he was thinking i know people don't want other people's advice but my advice is golden i mean i really do know what people need and i need to give them the advice so what do you have as advice for my friend (laughs)
1: um well your advice might be golden you know what i think i know your friend i think he's also called jim you know kind of weird coincidence. Right. Um, if you go back to the woman who you were meeting in Provo. Right. I'll tell you the two things that I might've done and handled it differently because I have two assumptions. One is whatever she's just told you is the problem that she's up against. That's not the real problem. It's just her first guess. It's mm-hmm. probably close to it, but it's probably not the real problem. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I would have said to myself was, let's figure out what the real challenge is here. Because quite frankly, if the thing that I help her with is figuring out what the real challenge is, that's the much bigger contribution than coming up with a fast wrong answer for her. Mm-hmm. So I'd have gone, oh, that sounds interesting. So, what, what, say more about that. What's the real challenge here for you? That's, you know, mm-hmm. my focus question, which I love so much. Right. And it would have, if I had to put money on it, I'd say, I bet you that problem shifts a little bit. It becomes a little more nuanced. It probably becomes a little more personal. And then the second principle I have is they've already got some answers. So there's no point in me giving answers till I figure out what they already know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd go, okay, so if that's the real challenge, my bet is you've got some, some ideas right away. So what's the first idea you've already got? And then I would listen and I'd go, that's great. I love that. That's a real possibility. And then I'd go, and what else could you do? because you've got more than one idea, I'm sure. So what else could you do? And she should come up with something. And I go, I love it. What else could you do? And I'm like, this is fantastic. Is there anything else you could do? Look, you're on a roll here. What else could you do as a solution here? And she would have come up with like five or six. And I'm like, these are great. Does does this feel like it gets you the answers that you want? Or do you want to hear from other options from, from me and from other people? And, you know, at least half the time, she's like, I got what I need. <laughs> I didn't need your answers in the first place. What I needed was clarity on the challenge and a sense of ownership of the solution. And you've given that to me by my, your questions, not by your answers.
0: You're letting control the conversation, too. You're saying, I, I'm, not, I'm not responsible for her solving this problem. I am a facilitator of a, a, a maybe a way of thinking, but, uh, but it's up to her to process it
1: yeah the way I think about it is going, look I in particularly with people who are your direct reports mm-hmm. um, where you have some sort of accountability and responsibility, I want people to know that I have their back. Mm-hmm. like I'm not going to leave them hanging. I'm not going to withhold information because I'm just you know curious. that's just mm-hmm. awful, but I want i I want to do everything I can for them to be empowered and feel an increase in autonomy and confidence and confidence and self-sufficiency and excitement and the act of empowerment i mean nobody, in theory nobody's against empowerment in practice what empowerment means is giving up power and control to another person meaning you lose some power and you lose some control and there's one part of your brain you're you know you're, you're basically you're, your brain goes don't do that that sounds a terrible idea. I mean, you've got to, you're overcoming a primitive wiring here that says, at no stage should you give up power and control because that's that's those are good survival things. You want those, but in in if you're trying to get to that higher level of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, that right up here, part of it is going, I am willing to step into what you know Robert Greenleaf called servant leadership which is my job is to make this other person leave better than when she arrived. And what that means is I'm willing to sit in the discomfort of not giving the answer, not being the smartest person, not saving the day, not saving the person, not controlling the conversation, not controlling the outcome. I'm willing to give up those kind of ego based drivers in service
0: to have her make progress on her own. So it sounds like giving advice is really more about what it does for me, the advice giver, than what it does for the person on the other end. Well, that it feels good to be it the solver of the feel,
1: problem. Oh, it feels great to be the person who's doling out advice because it is a high-status action. Look at me. I'm the smart person. Look at me. I'm better than you. Look at Mm. me. I know stuff that you don't know. Look at me. I'm saving the day. Look at me. I'm saving you. Look at me. I'm in control of this conversation. Look at me. I'm in control of this outcome. Look at me. I am better than you. That is a very profound dynamic. (laughs) Just like, if you think you're always the person to give advice, you're fundamentally saying to the other person, you're not good enough to come up with this answer by yourself. I'm better than you. And that's, that diminishes both parties in their conversation.
0: Yeah. The message is you're not capable of solving this problem, which makes them more inclined to come and ask for advice and less capable of solving their own problems. a vicious cycle.
1: Because, because there's a very comfortable collusion that can go on here, which is like, you know, this is perfect. You know, if you want to kind of get kind of over, I'm being probably a tad melodramatic here, but not too much, which is, it is a very comfortable process where relationships in organizations for profit and educational and otherwise are infantilized because there's this whole go to the person who's your boss and get the answer from them, parent, child, relationship, weirdness, and, and our organizational structures love that because mm-hmm. it sets up hierarchy and it sets up certainty and it sets up control because our organizations hunger for those things as well. So this idea of changing the way you behave is a little bit of a rat- radical act. I mean, there's a quote from uh, Nabokov which I came across the other day and I love which is curiosity is insubordination in its purest form. And there's something, you know, there's something glorious
0: about that to me. Yeah, because control feels like you're solving the problem. Telling the person what to do, it feels like, okay, we've fixed that. I'm going to move on to my next thing now because I've given them these gems. It's just that what it really does is doesn't solve. It might be focused on the wrong problem and creates this the inequality. It yeah. develops dependency and, and so or forth. Or it might be, just to keep reminding people, it might be exactly the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like well, That's my it, question. When should you give advice? How do you make yeah. a decision on this is a situation where I need to give advice?
1: There's, I don't have a generic answer to that. Um, there's an article by Daniel Goleman in, in the Harvard Business Review from about 20 years ago called Leadership That Gets Results. And he says, look, six different styles of leadership, they all have their moment. They all have pros and cons, prizes and punishments. Great leaders know how to use the right style of leadership at the right time. I mean, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, we want our leaders to create certainty. Now, I would argue you want to find the right balance between curiosity and certainty. But, you know, up here in Canada, we've, we've, I think, had our political leaders doing a really nice job of being very clear, being very aligned, being very disciplined about the messages that they're giving out. And, they've, and we haven't wanted them to be asking a whole bunch of questions. We wanted them to be clear and certain and giving advice, which is like stay at home. That's been really helpful. That's a time when certainty and advice and direction is exactly what you're looking for. <coughs> Excuse me. So the answer is I don't have a generic answer about when you should give mm-hmm. advice. But, but broadly, it's like just less than you do at the moment. So when I say, look, stay curious a little bit longer, I'm not going, so don't give any advice for a week or a day or an hour. I'm saying, look, in a conversation, if you can just make the first two or three minutes curiosity-based, it'll change your
0: conversations. I I think there's going to be situations, too, where people come to us with very specific needs. Yeah, exactly. uh, I don't know if advice is the right word, but if someone comes to me, not that I could answer this question, but if they said, how do I use Padlet to engage students and and I know how to do it, then I would say, well, here's what you can do as uh <coughs> my friend Christian, excuse me i'm getting the, the cold um my friend christian van nurberg says you know if somebody shows up to you when you're standing beside the road and says how do i get downtown you do say you don't say you know in other situations when you've been like this how have you figured out how to get downtown you give well, the okay answer. i have a story i have
1: a story to tell you around that because one of the influences in my work is ed shine and um he has a wonderful book called humble inquiry Mm -hmm. which is talking about the power of this you know why you want to stay curious longer and he actually tells a story about a woman coming up to her (laughs) and going how do i get here and he gives her the direct answer and actually it wasn't, it, she wasn't, act, anyway, it, somehow the story plays out going, actually advice wasn't the thing that helped. A question would have actually gone, it's like, what are you trying to get there? She's like, I'm looking for a supermarket. It's like, oh, I said, right. any supermarket? Because there's one right here and it could have been different. So mm-hmm. even in those explicit moments, a question or two can just make sure that you both understand what the real challenge is and the thing that's useful. And within 30 seconds, you can be going, right, got it here's what you need to do. Mm -hmm. But that 30 second moment can make all the difference between you wasting everybody's time and you being a really helpful ally.
0: That's a great point. There's a few questions, uh, quite a few questions that were sent in on Facebook. So I'm just going to pick a couple. One of them is, um, sometimes someone will ask for advice, but what they really want is affirmation. How would you recommend responding if we suspect they're seeking affirmation instead of honest advice?
1: Um, I'm not totally sure what that means. So what, what they mean by affirmation, which is like, are you just looking to confirm the idea that they've already got? Um, but part of my principle around being lazy is just anytime I've got a dilemma in my head, I just ask them. Mm-hmm. I go, so let me, let me check in with you. Cause I don't want to get this wrong. Do you want me? To, what sort of advice do you want here? Do you want me to tell you that your ideas a really good one or do you want me to come up with ideas of my own? What would be most helpful for you here? So just (laughs) get them to do the work, co-create a solution to that. Because if you're trying to be tricksy behind the scenes, kind of wizard of Oz style going, I think they want this. So how do I do that in a way that they won't even know that I'm doing it? It's exhausting and it almost never works. Just ask them.
0: Yep. And I think, and what you're saying is that's a generic uh, approach for, um, any situation where you're not sure what they want, just say so. What what would be most helpful here? Something like that. Fantastic,
1: yeah. And it, it's worth putting your hypothesis on the table. You know, it depends on the relationship, it depends on the person and the moment, but it could be going. You know what? There are times when you come to me in the past and you've gone, "What ideas do you have? Can you give me some advice?" And I've I'm never quite sure whether my advice is helpful or whether you're actually looking for something slightly different. So I'm curious. What you know? I'm curious. <laughs>
0: dot 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 another question is how do you know when to just listen and not speak
1: you know it's practice it's practice you get better at, you get better at sensing what's useful through practice what i'd suggest is try listening without speaking <laughs> and then when finally somebody goes what the hell are you doing <laughs> right speak to me then go oh, okay i'll try this out so try it's like experiment try it out. Here's what's wonderful about this. If it all goes horribly wrong, it doesn't actually go that horribly wrong. I mean, what normally, if, you, if you've if you asked a coaching question and it doesn't work, mostly people kind of go, what? <laughs> I don't get what you're asking me. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh yeah, terrible question. Let me ask you a different one. Um, if they're listening, if you're listening and you're listening and they're like, you know, Michael, I appreciate how intently you're listening, but I could really do with the guidance here. You're like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, let me let me give you some
0: guidance. Yeah, part of that seeking advice on the part of the coache for lack of better terms, uh, I think it's just it's a ritual or a structure that people want. And yeah. so they're they're they think, well I should be asking for advice here, even though they don't really want it if you I've got you a I've go a got a, a script
1: that that I can share with people, which is When somebody comes to me and goes, Hey, Michael, how do I, Mm -hmm. you know, as soon as I say, how do I, it gets my advice monster going, you know, in the book, we talk about these three advice monsters, tell it, save it and control it. We've kind of hinted at them in the previous conversation. And there's nothing like a, Hey, Michael, how do I question to get my advice monster coming up going, Oh, this is awesome. They've literally asked you for advice. You kind of have to give it to them. So here's my script, and people can use this word for word. I go, hey, Jim, that's a great question. And you know what? I've got some ideas, which I will definitely share with you. But before I give you my ideas, I bet you've got some initial thoughts on how to tackle this. So I'm just curious, what's your first idea on how you tackle this? Mm-hmm. And then kind of like we have done before, I nod my head and I look into it and I go, that's great. What else could you do? Right. Yeah, cool. What else could you do? These, these are great, Jim. I'm really liking these. What else could you do? Fantastic. Jim, these are brilliant. I've got one additional thought that might be helpful. Let me let me tell you what that is. So I've got a script which is a principle. I'm gonna help them. I don't want them to leave feeling that I've not got their back. Secondly, they they probably have some of the answers. May not have the best answer, may not have all the answers, but I have some of them. Thirdly, I'll wait, I'll get what's already in their head, and then I'll add my value
0: if if that's the usual thing to do. That's a great strategy if you have no idea what to tell them too, you know. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so what do you yeah. think you should do? Oh, what a good idea. That's better than what I would have said. Let's go with yeah. that. And, and my laziness is like, I go, wow,
1: that's really good. You know, I don't have any immediate ideas. Um but I'd be curious to know what ideas you've already got because you've been thinking about this longer than I have. So what's your first idea? I just don't even bother pretending. It's too tiring. Mm-hmm. Like, my memory's not good enough. I can't remember what I'm pretending to be. So I just have to be kind of straight up about it.
0: You're making me think it's kind of really what we're talking about is really about authenticity, almost in the way Sark talked about it, that, that we're acting a role versus really – just being ourselves in the moment let's ask a question and if i'm not sure what's happening just say i'm not sure what's happening what do you think about this and there's it's a sort of a transparent or transparency authenticity and so, so i forth. Prefer, i prefer the language transparency over authenticity mm-hmm.
1: because everything i'm talking about here is a learned response
0: mm-hmm.
1: If I'm being authentic, I'm often just slumped on a sofa in my underpants eating cheesies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like not a good look. It's not that helpful. Um, but what I'm tr- what I'm what I'm working from is principles around treat them like an adult, co-create, empower, and um, share what's going on inside me, and 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 be willing to be humble mm-hmm. <laughs> and to not know. And you you can frame some of that stuff as authenticity. That's certainly language that gets used, and I understand why. But I, I get a little entangled around this because I'm like, I don't know what authentic means. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's what the hell is authentic, where there's kind of weird blend of genetic right. and cultural, yeah. you know, <laughs> what's well, learned, think, what's not learned.
0: I think authenticity, the, the, being authentic this has actually been a thing I've I've wrestled with quite a bit. I think it can be an excuse for not becoming a better version of yourself. Like, I think you have your beliefs and you have your actions. And if your belief is other people's opinions should matter. Yeah. But you interrupt, like I just did probably. And you, you're, you're like, you don't live out your belief. I would want to be a truer version of myself as one who lives out their beliefs. But, Authenticity is kind of like, well, I'm sorry, I'm just a grumpy person, and that's just my authentic self.
1: Exactly. I'm I'm, I'm constantly trying to author a better version of myself. I'm Mm -hmm. trying to learn how to be better. So it's not entirely sure what authentic is. At -hmm. the same time, there's a degree to which part of the the self-work that I've done is I've got clear on what my strengths are. And part of it's like I try and play to my strengths. You know, I'm a good teacher. I can be funny occasionally in the moment. I'm a good spontaneous connector with people. So I try and play to the best version of myself around that.
0: Yep. Well, that's the whole idea of your your morning or evening reflection where you say, what, what am I going to give up? What do I need? What do I need to focus on tomorrow? It's about about trying to be a more true, a better version of yourself, a true, I would say a truer version of yourself. So one of the coolest features of your book is your year of living brilliantly, which is a brilliant idea. We used to talk about uh, the week of eating dangerously when we went on vacations, Jenny <laughs> and I. So I, I feel an affinity for this. But I love that. So, so tell us about that feature.
1: Actually, there's a few good things in the in the book which are free, which I'd love people to know about. One is the Year of Living Brilliantly. So if you go to mbs.works, you'll see the invitation for this. It is a year long, 52 weeks, 52 great teachers, including one Mr. Jim Knight. Each person has is shot a video two to six minutes long, and they're teaching something. They're teaching something that's the best of them to teach, and it's a really diverse, interesting, provocative mix of people. It's amazing
0: people. Yeah, it really is amazing. It's 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 just the leaders in in their fields. It's it's astonishing.
1: Yeah, it's it's I'm really proud of that kind of the that list of people I've I've curated also that it's like more than 50 percent of women there's like 25 30 percent of people of color so there's a diversity of thought and experience in that that group as well the other thing that people might like is at the so the website of the book there's actually a questionnaire you can take to discover which your advice monster is is it tell it is it save it is it control it so if you're that sort of person going which one you probably got an instinct but if you'd like to discover for sure you can find that at the
0: it occurs to me i didn't ask you my favorite question which is what's something most people don't know about you that's
1: a good question, you know, without revealing the stuff that I, you know, hold in deep shame <laughs> about myself, which I don't really want to reveal, which is like, there's a reason people don't know this about me, because nobody wants to know this about me. <laughs> um, I, You know, there's, the, so one thing that, I'll just pick one thing, which is, so I have a, a tattoo on my arm. Oh, wow. You can see like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm squeezing my muscles to try and make them look bigger than they actually right, are. right. Um, but it's if, if, it's actually vertical. It's a gum tree, a eucalyptus tree. Okay. And for me, I, you know, I'm Australian by birth. And, uh, you know, Proust in whatever the name of his book is, Time Forgot, talks about the madeleine. And the madeleine is this little cookie that takes him back and helps me visit times past. For me, eucalyptus uh, of that. So, you know, in my office... I've got a kind of a vase of uh, eucalyptus. This is an awesome ceramic gum boot, rubber boot that I got from Prague. But I've got uh, eucalyptus leaves as a way of kind of connecting back to somewhere that's important for me. I don't know if many people
0: know that about me. I don't think many people know I have a ceramic boot from Prague. I didn't know that. I didn't (laughs) know about eucalyptus. And it's uh, well, Australia is a wonderful. I have a. This is the first year I haven't gone there in about eight years, and I'm I'm really missing the chance to go. I have great friends. Yeah, Same with, I I, do, I will get to Canada, but I really miss uh, living in Canada. But um, I love where I am too. So it's it's great to have, I can still go visit. Excellent. I wanted to ask about TLC. So mm-hmm. we're, we're very hopeful that we'll be able to have our conference, the Teaching Learning Coaching Conference in San Antonio this year, in October. Um, if we can't meet face to face, and San Antonio is just going to be a great setting if we can do it. Really hey, but if we perfect. can't meet face to face we're going to have the conference virtually, so could you tell us about what you're thinking about talking about at the conference? We realize who knows what'll happen between now and then it could change yeah what do you,
1: think? you know i'm I'm still playing around with it, gym i um there might be I'm going one or two ways one might be a kind of deeper dive into the advice monsters and kind of going what are your advice monsters and how do they show up, and what does that look like um There's also a deeper dive into. <clears throat> Um, a model I teach in the new book called um, Easy Change Versus Hard Mm -hmm. Change and a kind of deeper dive into actually almost everybody gets in theory the idea of can I stay curious a little bit longer. In practice, it's harder than you'd think. And that's because for many of us that shift to being more curiosity-based for those ego reasons we're talking about, you know, being the smartest person, being in control, being the savior, um, are hard to give up. So um, my guess is I'll probably do some kind of uh, process around that. All of my sessions are very interactive, a bit provocative, and I'm pushing behavior change. So you'll be working in small groups to deepen the learning. I want people to leave different people at the end of my sessions.
0: The thing in education is, as a coach, um, I can justify giving advice because – I'm doing this because of the kids in the classroom. Right. And there is a point where that has to happen. If you have someone say something that's hateful or destructive in some way, sometimes it has to be called out. For sure. <laughs> but we can also, I've heard a lot of people say, I'm only thinking about what's best for kids as their justification for their idea. And it's kind of like, oh, well, what, you don't think we're thinking that? So it, it it's even more complicated. So that that uh, emphasis on change is really I think it's really going to be helpful. Um, Fantastic. Thank you so much, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Okay. The hour just for me just flew and it, it just took me back to Toronto when we were sitting in that little coffee shop. So thank it's you so up much. Around the
1: corner. I'm excited for them to reopen because they make a great croissant as well.
0: Oh, there you go. I hope we get to talk again soon because that's such a, such a pleasure. And I Jim. hope we see you in the, in the uh, San Antonio. Well, one way
1: or the other, we'll see each other in October, if not before.
0: All right. All right. Okay. Thanks, everybody. It's nice to bye see bye. you all.